Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The Epistle to the Hebrews is one of the most fascinating texts in the New Testament, having arguably the highest Christology, the most comprehensive soteriology, and realized eschatology. Hebrews is also shrouded in mystery, whether related to its unknown author or to the enigmatic figure of Melchizedek. Here to help is Scott Mackey. In The Letter to the Hebrews, Critical Readings, he has collected together numerous classic and groundbreaking essays from an array of scholars to provide a comprehensive entry into the study of Hebrews. Join us as we speak with Scott Mackey about his edited work, The Letter to the Hebrews, Critical Readings. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Scott D. Mackey has taught at Chapman University, Loyola Marymount University, and Fuller Seminary. He's also the author of Eschatology and Exhortation in the Epistle to the Hebrews. Scott, welcome to New Books and Biblical Studies. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me. Scott, tell us about yourself and how you became so engaged with the book of Hebrews. So I became a Christian at 26 and um, had a radical conversion from a uh, committed non-believer to a um, massively transformed, forgiven, and in love with Jesus kind of Christian at, in an instant, um, almost at 26. And so, um, and then gravitated, um, immediately figured out the Bible was absolutely key to, in a relationship, uh, um, with Jesus gravitated to the texts, which had, um, sort of come from this strong conversion, um, orientation obviously Paul, <laughs> John, Hebrews, um, and then especially Hebrews. Uh, and as I began studying um, um, critically, I, I noticed that there wasn't that much stuff written on Hebrews. There was a lot of room to, to, um, to, for, that, for the uh, critical literature to grow. And um, so I started studying uh, graduate study level at, at Fuller Seminary about 1998 at, with um, Donald Hagner. And um, he he had some expertise in Hebrews as well, but it was interesting at that point there wasn't that much stuff written, and I um, so there was a lot of room, and yeah, that's I think a pretty good background. There's just so much in Hebrews that that resonates with me that I I felt like I had no other choice than to study <laughs> Hebrews. In your introduction to the critical readings on Hebrews book. You mentioned how the epistle to the Hebrews is surely one of the most extraordinary texts in the New Testament. Would you give our listeners a brief orientation to Hebrews? Uh, and that's right. There's just so much there that is uh, best in class. And it's interesting. He's He has this um, syn- syncretious rhetoric where um, he's constantly comparing Jesus and what Jesus has done to past past things, person, persons, institutions, and so forth in, in um, ancient ancient Israel, and how Jesus is superior in every respect to all of them. Um, but then it's interesting that he then, again, my, in my opinion, is <laughs> superior in every class to everything else that's in 
at least in the early Christian literature, he's, um, and, and to me, the thing that matters most is he's the most passionate about Jesus. <laughs> and that was one of the things that really, um, led me and gra- that I gravitated towards, um, helped me gravitate towards this book. So tell us about this TNT Clark book, the letter to the Hebrews critical readings. What was your goal in putting this together? So as to the, uh, uh, this book itself, the critical reader, it was, uh, uh, I was becoming aware of a lot of the, uh, recent studies in Hebrews starting around 2015, you have this explosion of research coming out, but that, um, this scholars were too busy to, uh, um, immerse themselves in the, uh, works that had foundational for, for, um, the last 50 years. And because of that, a lot of their uh, inquiries were, were kind of misguided and um, try, attempting to solve questions that had already been solved. And in my case, the thing that was inter- that interest one of the things that interests me the most is eschatology and people not being willing uh, to acknowledge or having no awareness of the uh, um, author's ambiguous now, not yet eschatology. So, um, with that in mind, was thinking it would be great to have a um, handy collection of the most foundational works of the last fifty years for people to have um, as a as a basis, as a, a, sol- a solid underlying structure for f- future research. Now, whether I've been, it's been now five years since I published this, <laughs> whether I'm successful or not, we're, we'll we'll see probably within the next five years. It's hard to say. Um, critical critical scholarship is in, in many ways improving, but then there's I think in my mind there's um, there's some deficits compared with uh, scholarship of of days of yore, where not so much not so many things were published, and if it did get published, it was excellent. And explain for us also how you arranged the essays. Sure, the um, so arranged in six major categories, which have uh, been you know, the most uh, prominent ways of looking at, uh, um, most popular ways of looking at Hebrews, most popular issues, the largest catch-all kind of issues, theology, uh, eschatology, the uh, the author, who are his, uh, the people that he's writing to, um, structure, his use of rhetoric, and part five is um, the Hebrew Bible, and then part six, uh, soteriology. Seem, seem pretty common sense ways to arrange things, but obviously the most, um, the biggest category is theology and Christology. This is a Jesus book. This book, Hebrews, is, is all about Jesus. He's, and although he's Trinitarian, his soteriology essentially is all about the imminent Jesus. He doesn't seem to have, or at least he's, um, he may be familiar with, but he, with the idea of an indwelling Holy Spirit, but he's his more operative concept is an imminent Jesus, and his that at the heart of his um, exhortation is a uh, um, exhortation to to the community to get close to Jesus, um, close enough to have the impartation of of the all the great high priestly soteriological benefits that Jesus has has. Um, sacrifice so much to 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 provide for his community. This is how he's thinking. Um, his his uh, 
exhortation, his hortatory strategy is, I've found the best way to reduce that and summarize that is just to push people into the arms of Jesus, where uh, the solution to all their problems will be found. (laughs) Why should I persevere? Why should I continue in this silly, this stupid community? Is, the, is this uh, stupid community worth putting up with all of the the uh, um, abuse that I'm having to, having to endure? His answer pushes them into the arms of Jesus, reminds them of the great things that Jesus has done, and um, and then exhorting them with in the in the utmost um, with the utmost of his abilities to draw near to Jesus. It's, it's sort of an undisputed agreement among scholars that his most important passages in his and for his hortatory strategy are uh, 414 through 16 at the end of chapter 14 or chapter 4 and then um, chapter 10 at the end of near the end of chapter 10 and these are both passages that are the um, entry exhortations where he's laying before them all the confidence they have in being able to access Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary and then uh, again exhorting them in the strongest possible way with all of his rhetorical skills marshal to to push them into the arms of Jesus and that that's um that's what I've been that's what I'm working on the most that's what I love the most about Hebrews <laughs> give us maybe summarize one or two examples from the collection of articles that were groundbreaking or especially helpful toward understanding Hebrews. The uh, the things that, that some of the essays that were the most influential for me, obviously working in eschatology uh, for the first 10, 15 years um, were, were, were C.K. Barrett um, in the article he wrote that was at least published in, in the mid-50s on the eschatology of Hebrews, where he, though acknowledging there are platonic quasi-platonic elements there this is a highly educated um, probably Alexandrian Jewish um, person who's although he's not um, perfectly comparable to Philo that's the closest um, um, person to compare him to and so there is some platonic elements but he is more decisively um jewish and his eschatology is much more decisively jewish and that so that essay by barrett was groundbreaking um at that time and it really it there's so much there beyond even eschatology that just really set the stage for a lot of hebrew scholarship um thereupon barrett's it incredible he um i wish he had done more work in Hebrews and then I have it I have the only other essay by him is in here as well which is dealing with Christology and that and that also he just it was almost like it was that essay was almost done off the cuff no footnotes done uh, published in the 90s I think and just um brilliant uh other essays that were memorable for me at least and important for me are um and scholars that were important for me are uh, Kenneth Shanick David De Silva, Craig Kester. There's a, a really good article in here, a short article by G.B. Kerr, who taught at Oxford. Oxford. He didn't he didn't publish a lot of a lot of stuff, but what he did what he did publish is great. And there's a this article he wrote on the exegetical method, which is this, um, of Hebrews, is maybe eight pages long, and it, every everything he says in it is a distilled 
piece of genius. That essay is arguing that um, Hebrews is uh, his at the center of his argument. Um, his word, his uh, thinking is the self-confessed inadequacies of the Hebrew Bible. That the Hebrew Bible's um, aware itself of something better coming, and that there's things in its own system that just can't answer to the demands placed upon it. Aside from editing the collection and writing an introduction, you also wrote the concluding chapter called Ancient Jewish Mystical Motifs in Hebrew's Theology of Access and Entry Exhortation. Could you tell us what you cover here? Yeah, that the essay originally appeared in New Testament Studies, and it's um, I'm looking at those entry exhortations and seeing these um, a number of motifs that you find throughout um, Hebrew Bible that are absolutely key to conceptions, perceptions, and experiences of God's throne, the throne itself, the um, glory, angels, these sorts of things, all are in those entry exhortations. And while in the Hebrew Bible and ancient Jewish traditions, every single one of those elements is fearsome and induces um, a, a terror on the part of the visionary who draws draws near. Uh, um, whereas in Hebrews, they're all transformed into some into something that's welcoming. The throne is a throne of grace. Angels are 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 friends. They're not so they're not fearsome warriors, um, reminding us of our our inadequacies as as in Isaiah six and just about every other throne vision. And so it's this is um, just a classic example of Hebrews genius. His and also his desire for people to get close to Jesus. How can I do? everything possible to see people um, draw draw near to Jesus uh, as confidently and as often as possible. Let's see, let's turn this into, <laughs> let's turn the throne. And, I, and this isn't his imagination or just a product of his genius. This is his, this is his experience. He appeals, this is something that's been at the heart of my research um, throughout is he, he's constantly appealing to their experience in the past in order to uh, encourage them to experience more in the present and in the future. And it's, uh, uh, unless there is a, uh, um, unless you acknowledge that, see that, it's just really hard to make sense of his logic and, and what he's all about. If it's, if he's just using fancy language, this text is, is a disaster. If all this is, is just metaphor, this text is a disaster. It, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have succeeded. It wouldn't have been preserved. Scott, what are you working on these days? Any more projects on Hebrews in your future? I finished a, uh, I just finished an essay for a, uh, Craig Bartholomew's, um, one of his volumes in the uh, scripture hermeneutics, um, where I compare Hebrew, Hebrews 2, my favorite chapter in Hebrews, with Romans 8, and how the, um, so many similarities between two of my favorite chapters in, in the New Testament. Almost like these guys are um, <laughs> buddies and working together, or uh, just two of the smartest guys in the early church just so happened to have found the things that work the most are again, bringing people super close to Jesus. That's how you're going to get people to persevere through times of suffering, times of despair, times of doubt, is by um, pushing them into the arms of Jesus. 
And there's, I think there's two no, two no better texts in the New Testament than Romans 8 and um, Hebrews 2. So I, I spent um, a bit of time working on that. And it's, the other thing I discovered in that essay that was pretty interesting was how, um, how important theodicy is in the New Testament, that it's a, a, continu- a continual undercurrent, constantly in the back of the mind of, of the better New Testament authors. They're constantly addressing everything that uh, they're dealing with, uh, uh, everything that they're talking about is kind of built under, built atop this assumption that the communities that they're dealing with are um, having problems figuring out why they're going through so much suffering if they're now on God's side. So theodicy in the New Testament, I think, hasn't been adequately researched, and I'm and I'm giving serious consideration to doing something, doing more stuff on that in the future. Also working on Philo of Alexandria, which has um, actually been a a consuming passion. That sort of I began um, looking at him for just a small section of a chapter in a book I've been working on um, ongoingly uh, in Hebrews. And uh, Philo just grabbed me, grabbed me by the nape of my neck and has been forcing me to study him for like the last 15 years, almost full time. He is amazing. And so um, it's been re- it's been rewarding. I um, yeah, I think I consider him to be the, the, the most uh, important sort of background um, body of literature to, to understand the, the New Testament. Um, at least, yeah, that's my opinion. I, I, in a minority, there most scholars think that he uh, Dead Sea Scrolls are better, more important. Um, but so, yeah, working on a book on Philo's mysticism and a bunch of articles on Philo. Uh, working on an article right now on his apophaticism and anthropomorphism and his physio day, his visions of God, for a journal that's doing a special issue on negative theology. And he's been one of the progenitors of negative theology. Well, this book is a treasure trove. Thank you, Scott, for this labor of love, and thank you for being with us today. All the best. Yeah, thank you, Michael, and thank you so much. Appreciate it. Friends, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>